You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. style of gospel music that you sing Mm -hmm. did you do you as an adult now looking back feel like there was much connection with the black southern gospel music oh 100 yes as an adult now and understanding the history of just country music roots music so much of uh, what we believe to be and associate with country music or southern music southern gospel music all of it. it. It comes from a melting pot of a lot of different cultures and quite frankly owes a lot to the black community. We had quote unquote soul when we sang. That's what we that's what we said. This is Heaven Bent. I'm Tara Jean Stevens. Episode 6. The Tongues Not of Their Own. And this is the final episode before the finale. And during our time together so far, Sharon and I have definitely bonded over our shared Pentecostal experiences. She shared what it was like growing up in Emmanuel Church of Christ And especially, she's been so open and honest with us about her personal faith journey, something I appreciate so much about so many of the people who join me on Heaven Bend. But this season, this episode, there is this one aspect to all of this that Sharon and I both want to get into. And that's the appropriation of black culture in the white Pentecostal church. And the relationship or lack of relationship between the quote-unquote white Pentecostal church and the black Pentecostal church. And how did it come to be that today there are these two distinct Pentecostal churches anyway? It's a story I'll explore with you this episode and a journey that will include a really interesting look at the 1906 Azusa Street Revival in Los Angeles. But first, we need to talk about Kumbaya. This is the earliest known recording 
of a song most of us know today as the camp song Kumbaya, also known as Come By Here. One of the most recognizable songs in the world, it's an African-American spiritual that originated in the Gullah culture on the islands off South Carolina and Georgia. The Gullah people are descendants of Africans who were enslaved on the Atlantic. And I'm bringing up Come By Here because during my research into Emmanuel, I noticed that Nina's third husband, Colonel Walter Awood Medor, had included a version of it in the gospel songbook he published back in 1934. It was called Gospel Light Songs. Now, it's unclear to me exactly where Walter first heard this song, but turns out he was one of the first few people to ever transcribe it, adding his own verses and claiming it as his own. Although he did stick to the earliest known intention of the song with his new lyrics, and that was that it was an appeal to God to come and help those in need. But Walter wasn't the first person to take from black culture. And he certainly wouldn't be the last. I think the phrase now is cultural appropriation for what the white Pentecostals are obviously guilty of. I mean, personally, I mean, I think I see it as a form of blackface, too. It's not like actual blackface, but it's engaging in behaviors of the black community without any of the responsibility or not uh, hmm, the curse, the, 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 the racial crap that goes along with being black. So you get to engage in all the, the quote unquote privileges of being black, the cool culture without any of the shit that goes along with it. And for more insight into specifically how white Pentecostals have benefited from black music and culture, I've got to bring up Elvis. And for help with that, I'm bringing Professor Don Cusick back into the mix. He's a music historian and author of Saved by Song, a history of gospel and Christian music. So Elvis grew up Pentecostal, and as you say in your book, he looked at gospel music as his heritage, but he's also been accused of being, you know, the king of cultural appropriation of black music. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, you know, there's no music that's pure. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it, well, I'm talking about popular music. It brings in influences from all over the place. And so that's, you know, country acts have been influenced by Black artists, Black songs, urban music, or earlier R&B music, influenced by country music. Both of them kind of influenced by pop music, the Bing Crosby's and the Frank Sinatra's. It's not, what, what the, the stealing thing came along when rock and roll hit. Because up to that time, she, we were a sheet music industry. And a lot of different people could record a song the voice and the delivery and the arrangement that, that counted. Uh, but with, with rock and roll, the record became the definitive version of a song. So if somebody copied somebody else's record, uh, it was considered uh, stealing. And whether it's Elvis 
or Colonel Walter Awood Medor. White Christians have been enjoying the fruits of Black culture and the African-American spiritual experience for a very long time. But this has especially happened within the Pentecostal Church, which in the early 1900s, when the Pentecostal movement was still in its very early days, was made up of a very strong contingency of Black members and associates. Powerful leaders, electric preachers and prophets, extremely talented musicians and singers, like the popular Holy Ghost Sanctified Singers. These were all people who were experimenting with worship music. They were clapping and shouting and screaming. And as the Pentecostal movement continued to take root in America, it was very much Black Pentecostals who were being seen worshiping God not only from their heart, with their voice and their hands, but with their entire bodies. Oh goodness, it's very the new the new kind of uh, behavior in Black gospel meant that they were just much more physical. They moved around, they raised their hands, they clapped. They would be slain in the spirit. The singers would be so uh, emotionally uh, charged that they would uh, basically fall out. It was, it was a very active church. It was a release of emotions. To fall out is another term for when someone in the church is overcome by the spirit or overcome by the moment. Maybe they fall back in their pew or, I don't know, maybe an usher catches them on their way down. They did all the things that they couldn't do in that more formal type of music. And the formal kind of music Don's talking about? African spirituals, a genre of Christian music that makes up one of the largest and most significant collections of American folk songs in history. And they're songs that were born out of the transatlantic slave trade, many of them that are familiar to us, like Nobody Knows the Trouble I've Seen, He's Got the Whole World in His Hands, and Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, all songs that were popularized by early African-American quartets, like the Fish Jubilee Singers that you're hearing now. It's interesting that African-Americans have not liked their past music up until we get the soul music in the 60s. Uh, they didn't like the spirituals because that was slave music. They wanted to forget that, put that behind them. Uh, cancel culture, I guess. And of course, there's, there's that controversy in the church. You know, this is, it was a group that thought it should be more solid, more straightforward, more classic really aspiring to the middle class. And, and so consequently, when the uh, Fish Jubilee singers or the early quartets, they did it, they, they sang very formally, very straight. But then, at the same time in American history, 
Here you've got this exploding multiracial Pentecostal movement giving people a church that was emotional. It was more kinetic. It was more physical. And this is important because numerous university studies have shown time and time again that the kind of worship behavior that would take a hold of the Pentecostal movement, it definitively has roots that can be traced straight back to African religious practice. I mean, just observing it, certainly, that, you know, that that kind of jumping and that rhythmic jumping and shaking and then, you know, bending from the waist down, up, down, up. I can definitely see similarities in the shouting. That's what we called it. You know, she would start shouting, you know, so um, in, in those movements. I can remember, too, like being young, like when we were little knowing how we behaved in church and then watching, you know, like shows on National Geographic or something and thinking, hey, there's this tribe in Africa and they look like they're doing a lot what we're doing, shaking and moaning and trance-like states. And I can actually remember bringing it up with adults in our church who specifically told me that was the devil, the devil's work in those tribes and that it looks a lot like we do because it's the devil trying to deceive us. Oh my gosh. I I don't recall ever bringing it up like you did. That's that's cool that you did though. I, I'm glad that you did that, but I can't I had I had satellite TV in the 90s. Ooh. Exposed me to all sorts of stuff. And nowhere was this evolving Pentecostal worship style more prevalent and impactful than at the 1906 Azusa Street Revival a notably and at the time infamously mixed-raced historical event led by an African-American Pentecostal preacher named William J. Seymour, a one-eyed son of freed slaves from Louisiana. Okay, just to be clear, these are not my words. (laughs) It was a disgraceful intermingling of the races. (sighs) From the Los Angeles Times, April 1906. They cry and make howling noises all day and into the night. They run, jump, shake all over, spin around in circles, and fall out on the sawdust blanketed floor, jerking, kicking, and rolling all over it. Some of them pass out and do not move for hours as though they were dead. Sound familiar? Yeah, uh uh-huh, yeah. These people appear to be mad, mentally deranged or under a spell. And they have a one-eyed, illiterate as their preacher who stays on his knees much of the time with his head hidden between the wooden milk crates. He doesn't talk very much, but at times he can be heard shouting, repent, and he's supposed to be running the thing. This is, whoo, okay. So I was personally never taught about the Azusa Street Revival when I was growing up in the church, even though it is the roots of all of our Pentecostal families. So were you taught about Azusa growing up? Um, There was not a, as I can recall, a formal education about it in the church. But my grandmother, my dad's mom, she talked about it a lot. And I do feel like 
maybe someone else, maybe like at church camp, maybe have mentioned it, but it wasn't something that we were taught as, these are your roots. But my granny, my granny Adams, she talked about Azusa Street. And the way she talked about it was with this kind of thrilling excitement and uh, like a warmth intimacy. Like almost she was nostalgic for it, even though she was never there. Does that make sense? Like it was just this, oh, and then there was this great revival and, and, and it broke out. Like she talked about it with, it wasn't reverence. It was like a nostalgia almost, like a, like a memory that she herself had. The Azusa Street Revival is the be-all and end-all Pentecostal revival in history to date. It influenced so many people of many different races and denominations. And some say it lasted as long as 1915, so almost 10 years. And we'll get back to Azusa in a minute. And also, I want to say later this episode, I'll also welcome a Sean Crawley to the conversation He grew up in the Black Pentecostal Church, and he's got a lot to say about Azusa and the relationship between the White and Black Pentecostal churches as well. But part of the story is that in 1914, shortly before Azusa ended, after years of worshiping together, there was a huge racial split in the Pentecostal movement. This split happened officially when a group of about 300 white Pentecostal preachers from across the country met together in Hot Springs, Arkansas. They were there to found a new movement of Pentecostals. And when they first started it, it was called the General Council of the Assemblies of God. And at this very first meeting, the General Council, everyone was white. There's a photo I've seen and every single person is white. And anyone otherwise was not invited, nor were they welcome. Did you know about this? No, no. This meeting was the birthplace for what is today most commonly known as the Assemblies of God, the largest Pentecostal denomination in the world. And although it quote-unquote welcomes everyone, despite appearances, according to my sources, like Pentecostal researcher Professor David Reed, It's still primarily a white organization, originally founded by a group of racist white men. And some of these very same men had even worshipped right alongside Brother Seymour at Azusa. They took the rich and meaningful spiritual practices and music that African-Americans had brought to the Pentecostal table, but shunned the people themselves. But when all this went down, starting in 1914, not all white Pentecostals joined forces with this new segregated wing of Pentecostalism. White oneness Pentecostals, so Nina's predecessors, purposefully continued to worship and minister with black oneness Pentecostals until 1924, and then they segregated too. But they tried to come back together in 1931, and they tried again in 37, but at that point, the Black Oneness Pentecostals were reportedly and obviously so stung and so offended. So growing up, did you worship with people from the Black Pentecostal churches in your area? We did. We worshiped together. Oh, at a Thanksgiving service or, you know, just different times throughout the year. And sometimes special music back and forth. 
you're hearing the music of Dominique Johnson, the most viewed gospel organist on the entire internet. She's playing on a Hammond B3 organ, the instrument of Black Pentecostalism. This is what Pentecostalism sounds like. This is the way even I thought the Pentecostal church sounded like when I was growing up, even though nobody ever played an organ like that in my church. And I've been thinking about how, if I had to put it into words, growing up in the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada, it kind of felt like the black Pentecostal church that we'd see in TV shows and movies. It kind of felt like they were our Pentecostal cousins. And they are. But I hadn't even begun to look into this connection and the history of all of it until I started doing Heaven Bent. Because nobody ever taught me about any of this actual history stuff, like ever. None of it. Nobody ever taught me about Pentecostalism's founding fathers, or how there's two of them, specifically, one white and one black. And I was curious if Sharon had learned this growing up. Yes. I don't know that I actually identified quote unquote founding fathers, but I know that there was, there were movements along racial lines. And I do know question mark, or at least I feel certain that I believe that the white Pentecostal church pretty much appropriated black Pentecostal worship styles. Yes, I do know that much. So yeah, William J. Seymour, he was the black Azusa leader the Black founding father. And then you've got Charles Fox Parham, who was the white founder of Pentecostalism. And in 1900, Charles Fox Parham is known for founding and operating Bethel Bible College in Topeka, Kansas. Like Nina, he was eventually swayed into oneness Pentecostalism, eventually becoming the first openly oneness Pentecostal preacher in America. Charles Parham was raised Methodist, but he abandoned that in 1895 when he became a dedicated follower of the growing Pentecostal holiness movement. These guys are the very first Pentecostals, but I see that one of its primary founders was indeed a woman. <laughs> Every time, right? We don't hear these stories, but Phoebe Palmer was an American evangelist and writer from New York City. And she was huge when it came to spreading their message of Christian perfection throughout America. And the holiness message was basically that very Pentecostal belief that a person born into sin can, through a life dedicated to God, receive entire sanctification. We can become born again. And it was Charles Fox Parham in 1900 at his brand new little Bible college in Topeka, Kansas. It's Parham that would take this sanctification idea to the next level. And he was the very first to suggest this revolutionary new idea that in attaining Christian perfection and opening our whole selves up to receive the Holy Spirit fully, that in doing that, there would be evidence in the form of speaking in tongues. Speaking in tongues would be proof that the Holy Spirit was in you. And this is what he taught his students— that what happened to Jesus' apostles in the book of Acts, when the Holy Spirit fell and they started speaking in tongues that were not their own, Parham's belief was that this could happen 
in modern times. And so the story goes, it did. I had many blessed hours of prayer in this upper room during the night watches. Sharon's reading a quote from Agnes Osman, one of Parham's first students. As we spent much time in the presence of God, he caused our hearts to be opened to all that is written. And Parham demanded that his students, Agnes and the others, he demanded that they give up their material possessions, their money, and that they share absolutely everything. So their meals, their chores, all their time. He basically demanded that they give up everything to focus on learning and following his teachings, which quickly turned out to, I don't know, either be right or extremely persuasive. Because the school opened in October, and by the new year, his student, Agnes Osman, would become the first person that the Pentecostal church would give credit to for speaking in tongues in modern times. It was common for me to pray the verses while praying, and it was as if hands were laid upon my head that the Holy Spirit fell upon me and I began to speak in tongues, glorifying God. It was the early morning hours of New Year's Day, 1901. And after several days of intense fasting and prayer, the story goes that Parham laid hands on her. And suddenly, Agnes Osman started babbling. I talked in several languages, and it was clearly manifest when a new dialect was spoken. I had the added joy and glory my heart longed for, and a depth of the presence of the Lord within that I had never known before. It was as if rivers of living water were proceeding from my innermost being. Amen. <laughs> and the story quickly becomes big news. It was in the papers, and Parham himself told the press that Agnes had indeed broken out, not in some language, not of this earth but in, quote, Chinese, a claim that was later debunked by linguists, by the way, but nonetheless, great part of the story. The following morning, I was accosted with questions about my experience of the night before. As I tried to answer, I was so full of glory, and it seemed to me that the rest there were wanting to speak in tongues too. But I told them not to seek for tongues, but to seek for the Holy Ghost. I did not know at the time that anyone else would speak in tongues. I did not expect the Holy Spirit to manifest himself to others as he did to me, but it did. Isn't that arrogant? Yeah. (laughs) Why would you think it would only happen to you? So that's Charles Fox Parham's legacy as the white founding father of Pentecostalism. His Bible school was the birthplace of modern-day glossolalia, and his unique doctrine launched this entirely new branch of Christianity. But as we know, Parham would have to share the credit for Pentecostalism with a black man. And Brother Seymour wasn't just any black man. He had been Parham's very own student, something that reportedly got Parham's nose well out of joint. Not surprising since he was known to be quite racist. But he did visit Los Angeles, eventually, to check out Brother Seymour's revival, a revival that everybody was talking about across the country. And after his visit, 
he spoke publicly that he was dismayed at Azusa's mixing of races and described it as a southern darky camp meeting. We were in church maybe three, sometimes four, sometimes five days a week. That's a Sean Crawley. You know, some young people found church to be drudgery, and I really enjoyed it. Ashawn teaches religious studies and African-American studies at the University of Virginia. All of the work that I do is probably rooted in the fact that I was reared in um, the Pentecostal tradition. I enjoyed listening to folks sing, and I enjoyed directing the choir, I enjoyed playing the organ for folks, and I enjoyed visiting friends at other churches. It was a form of recreation for me. His father was a pastor, his mother was a preacher, and Ashan and his brother both became preachers themselves as adults, preachers and church musicians. Ashan is also the author of Black Pentecostal Breath, an extremely insightful book that includes an examination of the whooping, shouting, and shaking that broke out at Azusa. For me, Black Pentecostalism is the putting together of two words to create a different concept based on those two words. And so I put together the words Black and Pentecostal because for me, the way that I think about Pentecostalism is through the 1906 um, Los Angeles Azusa Street Revival. Like Sharon and I, Ashan can, of course, also trace his religious roots back to Azusa. And he's curious like us. So he told me about what he knows to be true about Brother Seymour. About how, before the revival broke out, before he'd come to L.A., he'd been studying the gospel all across the country. He traveled all over. And before he went to Los Angeles, he was in Texas and he was studying with some folks to learn about the gift of the Holy Spirit. But there was a curious and difficult problem is that the people that he was studying with in Texas were white. And because of segregation, they would not allow him to be in the same classroom with them. And so he would have to sit outside the classroom and hear what they are saying about the Holy Spirit from outside the door. Many people would say that was nice of them to allow him to even listen. I think that it's actually the, the opposite, that it is not the practice of spirit, but it is the practice of trying to make the spirit cohere with the, the ordering logic of racism, which I find to be deeply problematic. In February of 1906, Brother Seymour says God called him to Los Angeles to spread this new word about how speaking in tongues was a sign that someone had received the Holy Ghost in them. And this was an extremely controversial new doctrine that was not being received well. And I don't have any more details in this, but one church in L.A. even said they had to put padlocks on their doors to keep Brother Seymour out, which really helps paint this picture of an extremely passionate preacher who was absolutely givener when he came to L.A. And yet through all this, what's wild to me too is that Brother Seymour hadn't even spoken in tongues yet himself. He was just fiercely believing that this was biblical and he was able to convince a few others of the same. 
and within just a few months of arriving in L.A., an African-American couple named Richard and Ruth Asbury invited him to start hosting prayer meetings in their home on North Bonnie Bray Street. The prayer meeting was loud and rambunctious. It was in a neighborhood where people lived. And so it wasn't like a, a industrial area. So you couldn't hear people were listening because they were being so loud in the prayer service. And their loudness actually attracted people to the house to see what was happening. Some people came just to dismiss them. Some people just, just interested, like what's going on. And people would come and join the prayer service and they would also pray for the spirit, for the, for the experience of the Holy Spirit, which the evidence in that moment for them would be the practice or the experience of speaking in tongues. And so they prayed and prayed and prayed. And eventually some of the folks who were there that the house began to speak in tongues. And after that, so many people were showing up that the Asbury's front porch collapsed. That's how we wind up in that barn-like building on Azusa Street. And it was described this way because the building's most recent use when they moved in had been as a livery stable. So horses, hay. Imagine floors made of scrap lumber and plaster. And ecstatic worshippers packed inside. Black people, white people, Latinos. You have people of all races, all genders, coming to Azusa Street to have this experience of the Holy Spirit. People who are local to Los Angeles first, obviously. And then the newspapers show up, and there's an article that's released, I think it's April 19th, 1906, titled Weird Babble of Tongues. New sect of fanatics is breaking loose. Meetings are held in a tumble-down shack, and the devotees have the most fanatical rites. They preach the wildest theories and work themselves into a state of mad excitement in their peculiar zeal. The night is made hideous in the neighborhood by the howlings of the worshipers, who spend hours swaying forth and back in a nerve-wracking attitude of prayer and supplication. It's a fascinating sort of read of what's happening by someone who is outside of it, but recounting with a kind of detail precisely because they don't believe actually what's happening. And so it's like the person who's writing it is actually surprised. And it seems like almost a little bit upset that white women are laying their hands on the heads of black men to pray with joy and pleasure and with the movement of spirit. So the spiritual practices at Azusa, we've, we've talked about them, the tongues, the tarrying, shouts, and the whooping. You described it in your book as being a disruptive force. What did Azusa disrupt? I think one of the things that Azusa disrupted was the racial logic of who could be in a church service together. Like, and you know, in that 1906 article, Weird Babble of Tongues, the immediate thing that's mentioned is not just the noise, but like the people who are making the noise together. And so it's Jewish people who are making noise with Mexicans, who are making noise with Black Americans, who are making noise with white people. What sense does this make? And so there is literally this interruption to, or this, this interruptive force 
against the racial logic, but also the interruptive force to a gender logic, because you also have women in these spaces who are preaching. And I think that the Pentecostal congregations were some of the earliest to, with kind of intentionality and with a kind of re repetition, have women pastor churches and ordain them very, very quickly. And so like it, it's interrupting various modes of thinking about what it means to be a good upstanding Christian citizen, because you have folks who are making a lot of noise when at that time, decorum and quiet was probably the best way that you could prove that you could be a good citizen in the United States, as well as a good Christian was a kind of quiet contemplative practice um, if you gather with others in church, you sing your songs, but you certainly don't clap. And if you clap, you certainly don't clap a lot and you don't get sweaty. You just certainly don't run. You don't speak in tongues. Absolutely not. So hearing you talk about you know, the fact that people from so many races and backgrounds were worshiping and praying together at Azusa, we might jump to the conclusion that this was an environment free of racism and racial hierarchy. But you describe a scene in your book where white men were glorifying the fact that black people were praying for them. Yeah, I mean, no, it's like one could presume that there is no anti-black racism there and one would be wrong in that presumption that one of the reasons Pentecostalism spread as a global practice was precisely because of anti-Black racism. That after the 1906 moment where people are experiencing uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit, whose evidence is speaking in tongues for them, um, lots of people left the revival services and said, okay, well, we, we had the experience and now we can, we can preach about the experience, we can teach others about the necessity of the experience, and we don't have to go to the church with them folks anymore. So growing up in the white Pentecostal church in Northern Canada, mm -hmm. I always had this sense that we had been greatly influenced by the black Pentecostal church. Mm -hmm. And as I've grown older and I've fallen away from the church, it was this nagging feeling that I've had that we somehow, and even back then, even when I was in it, it was this feeling like we had somehow ripped off black culture. Mm -hmm. And I really am so curious to see your thoughts on whether my worship practices are a form of appropriation, the shaking and falling and whooping. Yeah, no. And, you know, I'm writing this book now. And one of the concepts I'll be discussing is appropriation because falling out is... <laughs> It's not, uh, it's not private property, like literally. It's just like anyone can fall out. And it has become clear to me the more that I paid attention to the things that I was actually trying to write and research and think about is that what the Assemblies of God emerges precisely because the clergy 
in the beginning moments of this organization renounced their relationship to Black people. And so, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it appropriation at all. I think that what it is, is evidence of there having been a relationship and Oh, what a lovely way of putting that evidence like of there having been a relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Aww. But like, you know, it gets, it gets complicated because like everybody, you know, you can fall out in the church if you want to. I don't belong to black people, but I think that black folks have cultivated that practice. Certainly, you know, it is, it's, it's complicated and it's a mess because it didn't have to be like this, but yeah. Here we are. Here we are. Sadly. So with such a, a great depth of knowledge on this subject, and you've, you know, you've put so much time and effort into your research and, and just how, where you sit with this, where do your own personal religious and spiritual beliefs rest in regards to Pentecostalism? Um, I mean, I'm agnostic these days, so I haven't preached a sermon since 2005 and don't plan on it ever again. My spiritual practice is grounded in my belief that Black people are beautiful. So my spiritual practice is one that tries to recognize and reckon with, well, what does it mean to be beautiful? And, and how does that beauty actually produce impact in the world? And what is that impact seeking to accomplish? And is there a way that it can be resistant to a kind of financialized logic of you know, capitalism and white supremacy and, and, and patriarchy? And, and so, it's a spiritual practice that seeks deep connection with others to make beauty, to find friendship, to um, eat good food and to laugh. That, that things that allow you to feel the various ways your flesh can behave, which is another way to say the things that can allow your creaturely existence to be most fully um, articulated. Um, are things that I think are really, really spiritual. It's really meaningful to me, uh, having come from the Pentecostal church and then made a journey similar to you to being what I would consider agnostic. Um, I'm often, for myself, feeling like I am lacking in spiritual practice because of the damage of the fundamental upbringing where it was like anything outside of what we believe is of the devil and is dark and is evil and is not good for you. And even though I don't believe anymore, I've really had a lot of trouble shaking that off, mm -hmm. but hearing you, hearing you speak um, about spiritual practice and, and beliefs there, it made me think that like podcasting is my new spir spiritual yeah. practice. Yeah. It's how I'm, it's how I'm connecting with people. It is moving me and making me um, feel like a fuller human being. And that was something that was really lacking for me, you know, in my late twenties and into my thirties when I had absolutely nothing but a non-belief anymore. And uh, there's, there's a, that's really meaningful to me. So thank you. You know, I, I'm thankful that it's meaningful. It's taken me a long time to figure out that I think that, you know, the thing that is lacking for, you know, folks who are leftists, we've defected from our spiritual communities. When we have experienced care, in the, you know, the, the, the complicated thing for me is I experienced a lot of care in those spaces, like a lot, and a lot of love in those spaces, which makes the homophobia and the, you know, the, the various kinds of 
violence is that much worse actually it wasn't all bad it was actually a lot that was beautiful about it and still remains beautiful about it and it i think it is right and good to leave because the harms that we experience in those spaces it doesn't it does like the beauty does not make the harms go away it's two things for me it's the care i miss i miss the community of of care mm-hmm. and i and i miss the music i miss singing and I miss harmonizing and I miss learning. I don't consider myself a musician, but I do consider myself a singer and I miss the knowledge sharing. I miss all that so much. And I, and I also feel a lot of concern because I have two kids and I'm going, I am raising them with absolutely no sense of um, traditional spirituality. And I'm hoping that my hippy dippy words about there being a great mystery in the world that we don't know the answer to is going to be enough for them it's it's you know I struggle with the idea of if I do eventually am gifted with the opportunity to rear some children I would love to take them to a black Pentecostal church because there's still something about the musical practice there that has not been matched anywhere ever still and I'm not trying to exceptionalize it and say it's the only place where it can emerge. I'm just saying that it certainly happens there. And, you know, it's a struggle for me because I'm like, well, you know, I'm like, would I take them to a church that's really, really homophobic because the music is good? No. But like, I would want to take them to that church, even though it's homophobic because the music is really good because the music is also evidence of a kind of social practice that could be an antagonism to the homophobia and the sexism and the classism. Like the goodness of the music actually tells me that we could actually do other things differently as well. And what Ashan has figured out, that I have figured out, that so many of us who have left the church for various reasons know, it can be an extreme struggle to get back that sense of community in your life after you leave. For better and or for worse, it, it constituted the way that I think about like my place. And to lack that placeness is really to feel afloat. And I feel that many of us experience a kind of, a kind of floating, a kind of a sadness precisely because there, has, there is no community that has taken the place of that kind of community of regularity. And to not have that is like, oh, I, I finally figured out that that's one of the things that seems to be missing for a lot of us. It's that kind of, of, of place where we just kind of know it's there. All right. Let's get our bearings before I get you set for the final episode this season. From the very first day of organization, there has been those faithful to him, and there has been those who have endured but for a season and then failed. So far, we've definitely got to know Sharon and what it was like for her growing up in the Pentecostal church. And we've helped her know more about Bishop Overseer Nina Mae Pierce and the birth of Emmanuel Church of Christ. Today, there are over 30 congregations with scores of men, women, boys, and girls who have this full blessing, who love God and are carrying the load. And how about those who have carried the load? Those who stuck around even after 1987, 
when their beloved assembly was forever tainted by a horrific scandal. And the church say praise the Lord. Coming up next, Emmanuel Church of Christ today. You could put this on the record. I feel like Emmanuel is going to dry up and die because they don't know what a strategic plan or succession planning is. The night is worth it all to be with Jesus. Amen. Also, on our final episode together. And I do think that David Terry and the leaders of his small congregation were in religion for the wrong reason. The verdict in the David Terry murder and arson trial. When a minister kills somebody, cuts their head off, and, and burns the church down, it's, it's big news. Will David Terry avoid the death penalty? And what really happened that summer night back in 87? The minister said he also wrapped Athene's body in a piece of green indoor outdoor carpet, which the church used in its manger scenes. Oh my God, the church used it in its manger scenes at Christmas. I, hold on a second. I'm still shook. Okay.